I was listening to the radio uh, just this morning, actually, and I heard a former NFL football player who had uh, the great Vince Lombardi as a coach telling a story about the greatest halftime speech Vince Lombardi ever delivered. And it went something like this. They were playing against uh, Detroit. Detroit was about the only team, this player said, in the entire NFL who wasn't intimidated by the Packers at that time. And they were on the same sideline because they were actually playing uh, their football game in a baseball stadium. So both teams were on the same sideline. And the Packers were losing 21-3 to at the end of the half. And one of Detroit's players walked down and looked at Vince Lombardi and said, how do you like that, coach? And then trotted off to the locker room. The Packers go into the locker room. Vince Lombardi doesn't show up. And NFL halftime uh, at that time was 12 minutes long. And with about 45 seconds left to go before the second half was to resume, this player said Vince Lombardi walked in and he just said one sentence, men, we're the Green Bay Packers. And then he walked out and the team kind of collected themselves and followed. And he said the reason it was so powerful is because they knew what that meant. All their times in practice, all their times in team meetings, they understood what it meant to be the Green Bay Packers. And it meant that there was a whole second half of football left and that this game wasn't over. And they actually went out and ended up winning by quite a bit. But that speech, this NFL player said, is the best halftime speech, not only that Vince Lombardi ever gave, but that he heard in his entire career. And it was one sentence. Men, we're the Green Bay Packers. This passage today, we're gonna work our way through it, but we could summarize this passage by simply looking at one another and saying, brothers and sisters, we're Christians, and we know what that means. So we're not going to overcomplicate this. What does it look like, to borrow from last week's language, to live life in the here and now with both feet in the kingdom of God as we travel through life in this broken world? It doesn't look like burying our heads in the sand. It doesn't look like having our head in the clouds. It doesn't mean we overlook this place while we look forward to our eternity at Mount Zion, like the end of Hebrews chapter 12 described. It means that we have tangible things that we are to be living out as followers of Jesus, that the Holy Spirit inside of us fundamentally changes us in particular ways that express themselves in the way that it is that we live. When the New Testament talks about how we're to live in light of the gospel, it's describing for us what it means to be kingdom citizens right here, right now. And here's the big takeaway uh, from Hebrews chapter 13, verses one through eight, that kingdom living is built on active, appropriate, abiding love. You want to make that even more succinct? Kingdom living is built on kingdom loving. Francis Schaeffer says it this way. Throughout the centuries, Christians have displayed many different symbols to show that they are Christians. They've worn marks on the lapels of their coats, hung chains about their necks, even had special haircuts. But there is a much better sign. It's a universal mark that is to last through all the ages of the church until Jesus comes back. That mark is love among Christians in a lifestyle display that displays where one's true citizenship lies. 
Hebrews 13 is going to lay this out for us, but it's not the only place in Scripture that does that. In fact, Jesus says in John 13, verse 35, By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Paul says it in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. James says it in the book of James. Indeed, if you fulfill the royal law prescribed in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. Peter says it, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17. Honor everyone, love the brothers and sisters, fear God. John says it in 1 John chapter 4. Dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. And then he gives the inverse. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. Rightly so. People will often talk about Christianity as being built on love. And this is absolutely true. I mean, think about it. The father has loved his children from eternity past. He will love them through all of eternity future. Gerderhaus Vaz, who is a Christian theologian and thinker, says it this way, that we can be certain that God's love for us will never stop because God's love for us never began. Meaning he's always existed from all of eternity and he had set his affection on you all the way in eternity past. It had no beginning point. It will have no end point. And that love is to instill, inspire, and initiate love within God's people. Rightly so. We talk about Christianity being built on love, but where we err is when we allow ourselves to think that this love that's described in the New Testament is merely a warm, fuzzy feeling. It's so much more than that. And what Hebrews has to say here is not an exhaustive list of what it means to live with two feet in the kingdom of God, but it is a good list. Remember, this letter was sent to a specific people in a specific place at a specific time. And that being the case, the author, inspired by the Holy Spirit, draws out certain aspects of what it means to be kingdom people. And the beauty of Scripture is that those specific instructions to those specific people are just as true today as they were then. In fact, I think we might be surprised by just how relevant and important the message of Hebrews 13, 1 through 8 is for us today at this specific time, in this specific place in history. If only we would allow the Holy Spirit to speak powerfully to our hearts and to transform the way we live. Kingdom living is built on active, appropriate, abiding love. Now, we're going to work our way through the commands that come in this passage, and there are quite a few of them, but understand this before we even get going. We don't live in obedience to these commands because we long to be people of the kingdom of God, and we think that by being obedient, we'll somehow earn our way into that place. We live in obedience to these commands because we belong to the kingdom of God. Because our faith in Jesus Christ and the grace of God that has saved us by his work on the cross has brought us to Mount Zion, like Hebrews chapter 12 says. It's brought us into the kingdom. And now as kingdom people, we live in response to the grace that brought us into that kingdom. We don't live these because we long to be in the kingdom. We live them because we already belong to the kingdom. Let's start to work our way through these. First, kingdom living is marked or is built on an active 
tangible love. That's what the first three commands in here show us. An active, tangible love. Look at where it starts. Let brotherly love continue. That's command number one. Active love is familial. It's brotherly love. One of the main ideas throughout Hebrews has been the necessity of enduring in the faith. And it should come as no surprise then that the first aspect of what it means to live in the kingdom of God has the idea of endurance built into it. Continue. Let brotherly love continue. When you wake up tomorrow, let brotherly love continue. When you go about your week next week, let brotherly love continue. When you've been following Jesus for years or for decades or for a lifetime, let brotherly love continue. Now, there's a specific thrust to that love. The call is to brotherly love, to a certain kind of love for those who are part of the family of God. The Greek word is literally Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. The author's first push for us is to love those who are in the family of God. If God is truly our father, then your brothers and sisters in Jesus are truly family. Let me be clear on this. I think the world outside the church cares very little about what the church has to say about love when we can hardly figure out how to love one another. Just go look at social media. The Bible calls us to love our brothers and sisters in Christ, and yet we are quick to strike one another. Quick to strike one another because their view is different than ours. Quick to strike one another because on a certain point of theology, they might think differently than we do. It's like we look for chances to come down hard on brothers and sisters in Christ. We exaggerate differences rather than rejoice in our familial tie. If we're always looking to strike at a brother and sister in Christ, we're certainly not letting brotherly love continue. Let me be really practical here. The New Testament gives many, many examples of what this should look like. This is a kind of love that's patient with one another. It's a kind of love that's gracious with one another, a kind of love that's self-sacrificing and forgiving. This is a kind of love that does not treat sin lightly, but also does not treat one harshly who's caught in sin. It's a kind of love that's repentant. It's a type of love that moves toward one another, a kind of love that's protective, a kind of love that is gentle. And so let me ask the question, how's your brotherly love? Is it tangible? Is it active? Is it visible? Is it that way, not just in person, but also online? Is it that way in conversation and also in action? If we claim to be a people of love, but that claim is only verbal, we've turned that love into a sham. Let brotherly love continue. Look at the second command, verse two. Don't neglect to show hospitality, for by doing this, some have welcomed angels as guests without knowing it. Don't neglect. There's your active word again, your active phrase. This takes intentionality and effort. And then let's just talk really briefly about the second half of that statement. What's likely in mind here is an Old Testament story from Genesis chapter 18, 
chapters 18 and 19. Abraham gets three visitors. They're on their way to Sodom and Gomorrah. He goes out of his way to invite them for a meal, and they stay. Then immediately after that, Lot, who's in Sodom, gets some protectors from a particularly angry and violent mob. And it turns out that both the visitors to Abraham and the protectors for Lot are angels. This idea that maybe in doing as Abraham did in showing overwhelming hospitality to someone, you've possibly done that for an angel. It's certainly possible. I love what one commentator had to say on this particular section of this passage. It is possible that when you sit in church, the person next to you will really be an angel. But he or she is likely something even more wonderful. There beside you in the pew is probably a saint of God. Across the room are those designed to serve as priests and kings in the very presence of the living God who are now being prepared for their glorious eternal future. And we're called to show hospitality. Now the question is, if that person sitting next to us in the pew or in our chairs or in your living room is a saint of God, working through this life, being prepared for an eternity in glory at the service of God. Why would we not show hospitality to one another? Notice the shift here. This time, we're outside the strict realm of a brother or sister in Christ. Don't neglect to show hospitality, period. This could be a stranger. It could be a non-believer. It certainly could be a brother or sister in Christ. Let me be really practical. Let me just ask this in the form of a question. How many people in this congregation know what the inside of your house looks like? How many people in this congregation know what your dining room looks like? How many people in this congregation know what the couches look like in your living room? Obviously, this season is challenging in that regard, but I think the question is valid nonetheless. We are to show hospitality. What's it look like to be someone who's living with two feet in the kingdom because they've been brought into that kingdom by the grace of God through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit now dwells inside of them? It looks like not neglecting to show hospitality. If you want to really be challenged by this, I would encourage you to go and get yourself the book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key by Rosaria Butterfield. Now, here's the thing. If you go and you get that book, don't get it because you just want to stuff your head with more knowledge about what hospitality means. Get it because you want the Holy Spirit to change your life in the way that you display hospitality. Active love is hospitable. Active love is also sympathetic. Look at verse three. Remember those in prison as though you were in prison with them and the mistreated as though you yourselves were suffering bodily. Remember There's your active word. Likely in view here is those who are in prison due to persecution. The author of Hebrews talked about them in chapter 10, mentioned them again at the start of chapter 12. We don't know that though. Those who are in prison and those who are mistreated could certainly be brothers and sisters in Christ, but maybe not. Here's the push. We are to care for those individuals as if it were either us in prison or us being mistreated and suffering. 
And what would we want in those instances? We would want sympathy. But see the true power of the gospel here. That person may not actually deserve your sympathy, whether because of the crime that they committed that landed them in jail or because of something going on in their life that might have brought the suffering upon them. Maybe they just genuinely, you don't feel like they deserve your sympathy. But if Jesus is to be our model, we have to remember we did not deserve his sympathy. And yet, what does Hebrews 4 tell us? That we have a great high priest who sympathizes with us. So, the call is to tangibly display the reality of our love to those who are in prison or those who are suffering by sympathizing with them. That's what it looks like to live with two feet in the kingdom of God. When was the last time you even thought about those who are in prison? Let me just say this. In the times that I have gone and done some prison ministry, I have found that there is no one more grateful for the tangible act of love that is just showing up than someone who is often forgotten in their jail cell for weeks or months at a time. If you're interested in being involved in prison ministry, I would love to connect you with those who could make that happen for you. Let me ask another question. When was the last time you did something tangible to try to alleviate the suffering of another person? Unfortunately, this realm of Christian love has been a little bit hijacked in our, in our current social and societal setting by a debate surrounding social justice. What's the church's job as it relates to social justice? I don't want to have that particular conversation at this particular moment because Hebrews is being clear. We're talking about real people who are really suffering. They're hungry. They're thirsty. They lack materially. They're being unjustly discriminated against. And what is the call from Hebrews? You sympathize with them as if you're the one suffering. And so let me just give you this and you can let your conscience wrestle with it as you will. When you hear of someone suffering in these kinds of ways, hunger, thirst, material lack, unjust discrimination, what happens inside of you most quickly? Does your mind and your heart look for the justification or the excuse for why that person must be suffering in the way that they are? Or does your heart move toward sympathy to alleviate their need? I'll leave you with these words from Jesus in Matthew 25. He's giving a parable. It says this, he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For when I was hungry and you gave me something to eat, I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or without clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you and the king will answer them truly I tell you whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine 
you did for me. Then he will say to those on the left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you didn't take me in. I was naked and you didn't clothe me, sick and in prison and you didn't take care of me. Then they too will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or without clothes or sick or in prison and not help you? Then he will answer them, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for the least of these, you did not do for me. Active love. Is sympathetic. Look at verses four through six. Marriage is to be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept undefiled, because God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterers. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be satisfied with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you or abandon you. Therefore, we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? The second point here, kingdom living is built on an appropriate love centered on Jesus. Learning to control our cravings, having an appropriate love for the things of the world in light of an overwhelming love for Jesus, that is the act of growing in holiness. It's the act of sanctification. Here at LCF, we call that pursuing holiness. I'm gonna revisit Francis Schaeffer. He says this, the Christian really has a double task. He has to practice both God's holiness and God's love, not his love without his holiness. That is only compromise. Anything that an individual Christian or Christian group does that fails to show the simultaneous balance of the holiness and the love of God presents to a watching world, not a demonstration of the God who exists, but a caricature of the God we have created. Okay, so what does this appropriate love look like? Well, appropriate love controls our passions. That's verse four. When we love Jesus appropriately, it puts our flesh-driven passion in its place. We learn how to honor marriage, which in this sense is specifically talking about the sexual aspect of the marriage bed. When we're single, this means maintaining purity for the sake of our future marriage bed. And it also means having our passions curbed, potentially for the marriage beds of those who are already married, that we would honor those. When we're married, this means maintaining purity for the sake of our current marriage bed. In both instances, we do so because the purity of marriage is to be a picture of the purity of the gospel. And loving Jesus appropriately recalibrates the urges of our sexual passion. This goes on then in verse five, and it talks about how appropriate love controls our consumeristic cravings. When we love Jesus appropriately, it puts our culturally conditioned, rampant consumerism in its place. I'll speak personally here for a moment. I think these weeks of stay-at-home, uh, of the stay-at-home mandate have done a phenomenal job of pushing in front of our hearts and our minds just how consumeristic we are, just how much we struggle to be content with what we have. Let me give you an illustration. Over uh, last weekend, I looked at Melody at one point and I said, I just really need a Z-Man from Joe's KC. Now, bear in mind, we had a refrigerator in a cupboard full of food, really delicious food. 
We could have made any number of meals at that point. And what were the words out of my mouth? Probably three or four times. I just need a Z-man. I just need a Z-man. I wanted a Z-man. And I struggled to be content with what was available at our house. The issue's not always with wanting, though we shouldn't covet. The issue is that we are often controlled by our wantings. We struggle to be content. But look at verse five, because this command actually comes with a promise. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be satisfied with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you or abandon you. God will never leave you. You can be content with what you have because the presence of God is always with you. You don't have that bigger house, that's okay. Jesus is with you. You don't have nice clothes or a lake home or a newest model of a car. You don't have that dream kitchen or bathroom renovation, that's okay. Be content with what you have because what you have is Jesus and he's not going anywhere. Now, an important note here, there's a difference between truly lacking and having a need and craving something that you want. We would do well to learn that. Much of what our American society and American culture has done for us over lifetimes of living here is like we're we're fish in water. We don't really know what it is to need versus want. And so what we think is that when we want something, we need that something. We're controlled by our wantings. What's it look like to live with two feet in the kingdom? It looks like treasuring the fact that you have Jesus. I have Jesus. We have Jesus. And that means everything else is totally releasable. We can let go of the desires to want and to have more. We've known cravings in our lives. And we've allowed ourselves to believe that our cravings are needs. We need the Holy Spirit to recalibrate our hearts. Show us what we just want. And then teach us to be content with what we have. The third part of this is verse 6. Appropriate love for Jesus controls our egos. Therefore, we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Loving Jesus appropriately puts our often unquenchable ego in its place. Loving Jesus appropriately, living with two feet in the kingdom, teaches us to latch on to the promise that the Lord is my helper and I need not fear what men can do to me. You want to know who's not your helper? The popular kid at school. The man or woman who commands all the attention at work. The mom who controls the gossip channel at the neighborhood pool. The critic on social media. They're not your helper. Those people will quietly control us until we learn how to allow our love for Jesus to put our ego in its appropriate place. An appropriate love for Jesus an understanding that the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? that makes it so that we realize we have all the approval that we need. That though we may long for the applause of men or the applause of women, what we have is the eternal affection of God. And we may never get the applause we're seeking, but we've got all the affirmation that we could ever need. 
we ought to be people who are committed to both praying for and actively partnering in the Holy Spirit's work to give us appropriate loves, a passionate, craving, clinging to Jesus that puts our fleshly passions, our consumerism and our ego in their appropriate places. Those three things, fleshly sexual desires, consumerism, popularity and status, those are things that our world prizes and treasures. To be people who are living with two feet in the kingdom means that we are people who look utterly different than the world in those areas. Last, kingdom living is built on an abiding love that enables long-term faithfulness. Verses seven and eight, remember your leaders who have spoken God's word to you as you carefully observe the outcome of their lives, imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We're to remember the faithful who have led us that it might encourage faithfulness in us as we live in light of an eternally faithful savior. What does this abiding sort of love teach us to do? It teaches us to watch faithful examples. These leaders that verse seven talks about could be pastors at the church. They could also be women or men who have discipled you in the past. They could be women or men who are simply part of our church that you've often looked up to or believers who are part of a different church. They could be Sunday school teachers you had in the past. But let me just for a brief second talk about the pastors and staff members of this church. You want to remember your leaders that have spoken God's word to you, observe the outcome of their lives and imitate their faith? Let me put before you Jim Stites and Kurt Huber and what a phenomenal example they are of how to listen and empathize and care with a Christ-like kind of love. Let me put before you Catherine Cole who's maybe the best example I've ever seen of someone who knows what it is to sacrificially give of themselves and serve other people. Let me put before you Libby Skillman and what a fantastic model of long-term persistent faithfulness in service she is. Let me put before you Christy West and Janet Lapp, Lisa Vaughn, Jenna Weber, Erica Shear, and the picture they are of what it is to just serve quietly and humbly with no recognition. Katie Wiley, who's a picture of Jesus's warmth and hospitality and welcoming heart. Tim Adams, who's a fantastic example of what it is to just be consistent day in and day out and to show up and be present and to look you in the eye like Jesus would. Put before you Leah Blanton and Kelly Heiser and the picture that they are of what it is to be wise and thoughtful and diligent in like a Proverbs sort of way. Erica Thomason, who's an amazing picture of what it is to passionately pursue people in relationship with a Christ-like kind of love but before you, Brian Bliss, who's just an amazing picture of joy. What does like the Holy Spirit fruit of joy look like? Spend an hour with Brian Bliss. I give you Joe Stewart, 
who's got an unbelievable passion for the name and the glory and the spread of Jesus Christ. I give you Corey Thomason, who's an amazing picture of how to use one's God-given gifts in order to serve the church, but also to serve the world and to make beautiful things for the world to see. More than anything, that list of people who make up our staff that work kind of in our office on a day in and day out basis, they're a group of people who would look anyone in our church in the eye and say, follow me as I follow Jesus and recognize that they do it imperfectly, but that they're willing to put their life out there to be imitated. And what does Hebrews say? Remember those people. Why do we remember those people? That we might learn how to live out a faithful witness that it might instill or inspire faithfulness inside of us, that seeing the outcome of the lives of our leaders would encourage you to remember that you can do likewise. They're part of that cloud of witnesses that Hebrews chapter 12 reminded us that is faithful men and women who live with both feet in the kingdom. We're surrounded by that cloud of witnesses that we might just be reminded that it's possible to endure in the faith difficult, but possible. I don't know who you drew your picture of, but maybe one last thing you could do on that little piece of paper would be to just jot down a few words. How is it that that person points you to Jesus, reminds you of Jesus, encourages you in your faithfulness? And then last, verse eight, this abiding love inside of us teaches us to ever trust an ever faithful savior. It all happens, all of this, all of these commands in light of a savior who is eternally faithful, always the same, yesterday, today, forever. This is the scriptural answer to the heresy we talked about last week. He is the same. Old Testament, New Testament, eternity past, eternity future, last week, this week, next week, 10 years ago, this decade, and the next decade. He's never going to change. Those promises mentioned earlier in this passage, verse five and in verse six, they're just the same today as they were when God made them in the Old Testament. In a letter that focuses on enduring in the faith, it should come as no surprise that one of the great grounding reminders in all of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is unchanging. What we read of him in scripture, we, ex- we will experience of him eternally. What we saw of him on the cross was true of him before ha- Calvary's hill was ever created. He is ever faithful. And may the faithfulness of our lives be the same. If I were to walk in to the halftime right now, I would simply look at you and say, sisters and brothers, we're Christians. What more needs to be said? Let brotherly love continue. Don't neglect to show hospitality. Remember those who are in prison and those who are being mistreated as though you were suffering yourself. Learn to control your passions your passion for fleshly pleasure, your passions for consumeristic things, your passions for your popularity and your status. Remember the faithful who have come before that you might be faithful in light of a savior who is eternally faithful. What's it look like to live with two feet in the kingdom of God? There it is. As we close, I wanna encourage you to do two things. 
number one, maybe like you did a couple weeks ago with Joe, write down one thing from this passage, one thing from these eight verses that you could put into practice this week. I'd love for you to send that to me. You could send it to anyone on our staff. You could send it to a small group leader or an accountability partner or a discipler. And then let's move forward, living like people who have two feet in the kingdom, living in obedience to this because we already belong to the kingdom, not because we're striving to earn our way into it. And then the second thing I would encourage you to do is this. I'm gonna start a prayer here. And then I'm just gonna kind of let you take it. One of the things that happened as I was working through this passage both months ago as I was preparing this sermon series through Hebrews, but also over the last week or so as I was thinking about this particular passage is that the Holy Spirit really worked on my conscience. That there were some aspects of active abiding appropriate love where I could grow and take some steps forward. And so I'm gonna pray that the Holy Spirit would stir in our conscience and move us to obedience. And then I'm gonna let you take that prayer over and fill in the specifics yourself. Pray with me now. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that it reminds us that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Thank you that we can hold fast to all of your promises in scripture God, not just the two mentioned uh, in this passage, but all of your promises. Thank you that you don't call us to living uh, holy lives and then leave us without any sort of instruction about what that looks like. God, thank you for being clear in your word. God, thank you for your grace that brought us into your kingdom, Lord. And now I pray, God, would your Holy Spirit wrestle with our consciences? Bring us into obedience to your word. Illuminate the places in our hearts, Lord, where we might struggle with a love that's active and tangible, where we might struggle with a love that's appropriate, God, and that its passion is first and foremost for you and it doesn't get inappropriately attached to other fleshly cravings here in this world. Illuminate to our hearts, God, how we can have an abiding love that creates faithfulness in this life. 